Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we count on such a privilege to call you Father, and we thank you for your love and your character and how you've designed your universe to run. We ask that you will join us this morning, that our hearts will be in, uh, transformed, our minds will be enlightened, and that we will draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. One announcement, um, this coming Wednesday from 5 to 7 p.m., I'm scheduled to be uh, the guest on the Janet Parshall or Parshell Show, which is a Moody Radio, um, which is broadcast nationwide um, from 5 to 7. It's uh, local radio 88.9. They called on Thursday last week to schedule for that. So that, that, was, that was a nice surprise. So we're doing lesson number three in the quarterly, uh, Feed My Sheep, First and Second Peter. And the title this week is A Royal Priesthood. And the memory text is First Peter 2.9, which says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Now, the question I have for you is, first question is, Are chosen generation, royal priesthood, holy nation, Special people, different groups, or just all descriptions of the same group? Are they four different groups? Same group, just different ways to describe the same group. Okay, same group? Okay. Is it, and, and is this group determined, do you become a member of this group, is it determined by genetics? By geography? Ethnicity? National citizenry? Denominational membership? Dress code, dietary habits, day of worship. You mumbled a little less on that one. (laughs) Um, A certain combination of the above. So what determines the makeup of this special group? Who ends up being part of the chosen generation, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the special people? What is it that, that defines whether you're a member of this group or not? Your love for God. Those who accepted Christ. Those who accepted Christ. The love for God. Other thoughts? Those who have character like Christ, which would be those who love God and those who have accepted Christ. Those, yes. So all those things are, are true. Um, but, but they have the same definite core meaning. Those who, who, having accepted Christ, have a love for God, have a character that's being transformed to be like Christ. Would, would that be who this group is? So... Consider this, this quote. This is out of the Second Testimony 169. See what you think of it. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our memory text. Now the quote. Christ has called you to be his followers to imitate his life of self-sacrifice and self-denial. To be interested in the great work of redemption of the fallen race. Christ is your pattern that in which you... that in which you are deficient, is love. This pure and holy principle distinguishes the character and conduct of Christians from those of worldlings. Divine love has a power purifying influence, a powerful purifying influence. It is to be found only in renewed hearts and naturally flows out to their fellow men. Love one another, says the Lord, as I have loved you. Greater love is no man that he lay his life down for his friends. Christ has given us an example of pure disinterested love. Without the spirit of love, no one can be like Christ. With this living principle in the soul, no one can be like the world. Did you say pure disinterested love? Disinterested, meaning uh, without an agenda. Without an agenda. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Do, do, would you argue with that? Do you say, she's got it wrong, she's messed up, she's off, off the reservation, she didn't say anything about keeping the commandments? Well, or do you agree? She said it's the greatest commandment. Right, the greatest of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes. So those who make up this special group, this, this royal priesthood, are those who are like Christ in character. Do you think of an end-time Bible verse that describes that same thing? How about... Revelation twelve seventeen. Does this describe the same thing or not? The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Is that describe? Do you hear that exactly the same as what we just read? Historically, is that what you always think about? That's describing people who love like Jesus loves. But isn't it? 
Holding to the commandments means worshiping on a certain day. Can a person, can persons choose to worship religiously and observe certain avoidance of certain behavior weekly on a certain day and still not keep the commandments of God? What is the requirement to be a commandment keeper? What's the requirement? There you go. Brilliant. Exactly right. The requirement. You cannot keep the commandments behaviorally. They have to be kept from a heart that loves. That's it, isn't it? The heart that loves God and others more than self. That is the requirement. Thus, those who put Christ on the cross wanted him down by sunset so they could... Exactly. Exactly. Were they then commandment keepers or commandment breakers? See, keeping a day while crucifying, while having selfishness in the heart, you're not a commandment keeper. You have to have the heart change. And then hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, this has got a certain historic interpretation within a certain denomination that I'm quite familiar with. But is that what it really means? What, what it often means is uh, the testimony of Jesus, and over in Revelation 19 it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy in the old King James. And thus the spirit of prophecy means that the testimony is the, the group that has the, the prophetic gift manifested in it. And then if you have some, some writings of dead prophet, then you've got the, 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 uh, the, the gift of prophecy. No. Well, the scripture is filled. The scripture is writing of dead prophets. That's what the scripture is. But that's not what it actually means. Holding to the testimony of Jesus, and the testimony of Jesus is the, is the testimony which the Spirit filled the prophets with. And thus in the road of Emmaus, Jesus walking along and he unveiled all the prophets and all the prophecies were testimonies of him. And so what is the, Spirit, what is the testimony of Jesus? Those who hold to it? Those who give the same testimony about the Father that Jesus gave. That's the testimony of Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come to finish the work you've given me to do. I have made you known. And this final group will love God and others more in the way they live their life. That gives the testimony. And then they will proclaim the truth that God is exactly as Jesus revealed him to be. That's the final group. So what does it mean to be called out of darkness into the marvelous light? How would you describe the darkness? What is the light? Well, I came across this passage. I found it quite interesting as I was studying for the lesson this week. It's out of Five Testimonies, page 738. See what you think of this unfolding question of darkness and light. From the beginning, it has been Satan's studied plan to cause men to forget God. And before I even go on, does your mind automatically bring up into your database Bible verses and references from other sources like 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and you think, well, we're in a war. And though we live in the world, we don't wage war like the world does. The weapons we fight, they're not carnal. They have divine power. Demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? Every argument and pretension that sets itself up against? The knowledge of God. Did you immediately have your brain go, yeah, that's the issue, because we're in a war over who God is. And so from the beginning, it has been state and studied plan to cause men to forget God that he might secure them to himself. Hence, he has sought to misrepresent the character of God, to lead men to cherish a false conception of him. The creator has been presented to their minds as clothed with the attributes of the prince of evil himself, as arbitrary, and we're going to unpack that. I want you to have a clear understanding of what arbitrary means, severe and unforgiving, that he might be feared, shunned, and even hated by men. What does arbitrary mean? On a whim, no rhyme or reason. It certainly does mean that. It also means rules that are made up without inherent consequence. Arbitrary laws, laws that, that can be changed on a whim. And this is why there's so much injustice in the legal justice system of our government, because one person gets sent to life imprisonment for you know, their third drug offense, Another person mur- rapes and murders someone and gets five years imprisonment. And <laughs> You know, this happens, right? Yes. How, how can this happen? Because the, these are arbitrary laws with arbitrary punishments assigned by judicial proceedings. Arbitrary. Laws that require external enforcement, and then the rules can be changed based on circumstance. But you know something? Design laws are never arbitrary. Design laws do not... Um, uh, play favorites. It doesn't matter if you ha- if you are a, a Protestant, a Jew, or a Catholic. If you, all three jump off the Empire State Building, the law of gravity treats them exactly the same. 
There's no equivalence. I mean, it's all equivalent. There is no arbitration there. So there's no arbitrariness. Severe and unforgiving. Unforgiving, meaning I'm not going to forgive. Something has to be done to pay. There must be punishment. Something has to be done to appease, to propitiate. I don't just forgive. But that's not the God of the Bible. God forgives. And that's because when you understand design law, he doesn't have to remain unforgiving. He extends forgiveness to everyone. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But they weren't saved, even though he forgave. Why? Because they didn't accept and be changed by that grace and that forgiveness. Keep going. Satan hoped to so confuse the minds of those whom he had deceived that they would put God out of their knowledge. Now, in this world where this imperialistic view of God who rules the universe like uh, Caesar runs Rome and he makes up rules and he's got his his angels following, keeping track of every sin, there's going to be accountability, there's going to be punishment, Uh, you've got to have this God paid, you've got to have Jesus and marrying the saints or whoever pleading to, to, to hold his anger at bay. In this world in which the view of God has gone to the world, has there been a reaction to that where a philosophy has arisen such that there is no God? We live in a universe where there's no God. Has that happened? Is there a a large segment of our society now that believes there is no such thing as God? And why? This is the the wine of Babylon which intoxicates the nations and, and they're all reacting to it because this distorted view of God, this imperialistic dictator view of God does not actually comport with how nature and science works. And so thinking people look at that and go, that's horrible, I reject that. And they've thrown out the the idea of God altogether And this is part of the goal. Satan hoped to confuse the minds so they would put the God out of their knowledge. Then he would, then, what would he do then? What would Satan do then? After he he represented so horribly that people reject the idea of God altogether, then what? Then he would obliterate the divine image in man and impress his own likeness upon the soul. Do we find greed, selfishness, arrogance, exploitation of others, dominance, coercion, threat, deceit, do we find it growing ever more increasingly strong and valued and appreciated and and esteemed and and people wanting to become more like it? And, And do we find this? We do, don't we? We do. It was by falsifying the character of God and exciting distrust of him that Satan tempted Eve to transgress. By sin, the minds of our first parents were darkened, their natures were degraded, and their conception of God, conceptions of God were molded in their own narrowness and selfishness. Do we have the problem in religions today that people still construct God who functions like sinful beings do, making up rules and threatening to punish if you don't obey? Still have the same problem. And as men became bolder in sin, the knowledge and the love of God faded from their minds and hearts. At times, Satan's contest for the control of the human family appeared to be crowned with success. During the ages preceding the first advent of Christ, the world seemed almost wholly under the sway of the prince of darkness, and he ruled with a terrible power as though, as though, through the sin of our first parents, the kingdoms of the world had been his, had become his by right. I'm going to pause. This author used the words as though, meaning they weren't, but he acted as if they were. Do you know those who operate under that penal legal model? Many of them actually argue that Satan was now the rightful ruler of earth, and he had rights, legal rights to this planet, that Christ had to come and wrest those legal rights away from him. That's not true. If you read in Daniel, God is the one who still rules on earth. He's always ruled on earth. Adam's, Adam's um, authority on earth was under the dominion of God. He was the vice regent under Christ. Christ was the rightful ruler, and he was the regent under Christ. And so he, he abdicated his responsibilities, but it did not displace Christ from his rightful rulership. Satan has no rights. He's a liar and a fraud. He claims it, but it's not true. Christ... Even the covenant people whom God has chosen, had chosen to preserve in the world a knowledge of himself had so departed from him that they had lost the true conception of his character. Was the covenant people 
given all the blessings to teach the truth about God's character, this author said had become so far afield they'd lost what his true character was like. Do you agree with that? Is that happening today? Are there people that take the name of Christ today that have so accepted such an imperialistic view of God that they misrepresent him? So Christ came to reveal God to the world as a God of love, full of mercy, tenderness, and compassion. The thick darkness, we ask the question, what is the, we're, we're, we're being delivered out of the darkness into the marvelous light. The thick darkness with which Satan had endeavored to enshroud the throne of deity was swept away by the world's redeemer, and the Father was again manifested to men in the light of life. Light of life. What do you understand light of life to me? Light of life. What would that be? Truth, love, and freedom. The of righteousness. The S-U-N in, in Malachi. The S-U-N of righteousness. Rising with healing in his rays. Okay? What, what are these metaphors suggesting? What do we understand the nature and character of God to be? God is? And how is all life built to operate? And where does the original energy stemming from? God is giving himself constantly and the, and the beams of truth and the beams of love are constantly immersing from him out into his creation to sustain and hold up. And only as we deviate from his design do we separate ourselves from those beams and thus we become sick and, and ultimately terminal and die if we aren't reconciled. Christ declares himself to be sent into the world as a representative of the Father, in his nobility of character, in his mercy and tender pity, in his love and goodness, he stands before us as the embodiment of divine perfection, the image of the invisible God. Do we hold to the testimony of Jesus? What is the testimony of Jesus? That if you, This is what God is like. Do we believe it? Or do we still have vestiges of that old view that God is uh, someone we need protection from? Sunday's lesson, the question is, what the, living, the title is Living as a Christian. What does it mean to live as a Christian? Second paragraph, second, third paragraph reads, Peter uses two separate images to show that Christians have a double duty. One is negative in that some things are discarded. The other is positive in that we should seek to do something. In the first image, Peter urges Christians to rid themselves of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. In doing this, Christians will conduct themselves differently from the way many of those around them do. Because they have discarded malice, they will not desire to harm others, but instead will seek their good. Because Christians have discarded insincerity, they will not act to deceive others, but will be straightforward and honest. Christians will not envy those who have more than they do. They will be content with their lives and flourish where providence has placed them. Nor will they make statements that deliberately damage another's reputation. Interesting. So is is Peter suggesting that when we become Christians, we stop criticizing, fault-finding, backbiting, gossiping, tail-bearing? Is he suggesting we stop doing that? Stop exploiting people. Will we avoid making statements that deliberately damage another's reputation? But what about if it's true? What about if it's a fact? If it's a truthful fact of what someone's did, did th- then is it okay to, be- to bear that tale and tell people? Yeah. So, this is the point. If we're like Christ, when, when the woman caught in adultery was brought before Christ, remember, he knew the secret sins of the people who were trying to plot, uh, plotting against him. Did he publicly embarrass them? And, and be- or did he simply write in the sand and each person was convicted and left? But he didn't, he didn't tell stories on people. He protected reputations, even of his enemies. Is that our responsibility? Do we love others? So this, uh, I found several quotes this week I found really interesting, so I want to share them with you. Here's, here's another. Uh, and, and as you listen to this one, I want you to think more broadly. This is specifically targeting Seventh-day Adventists, but think more broadly. Uh, does this apply to any group, any denomination? It says, I was shown that those who are trying to obey God and purify their soul through obedience to the truth are God's chosen people, his modern Israel. God says uh, of them, through Peter, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Remember the verse. 
as it was a crime for Amalek to take advantage of the children of Israel in their weakness and weariness to annoy, perplex, and discourage them, so it was no small sin for you to be closely watching to discover the weakness, the haltings, the errors, and sins of God's afflicted people and expose the same to their enemies. You were doing Satan's work, not the work of God. Many of the Sabbath-keeping Adventists in this certain place have been very weak. They have been miserable representatives of the truth. They have not been an uh, they have not been an honor to the cause of present truth, and and the cause would have been better off without them. You have taken the unconsecrated lives of Sabbath keepers as an excuse for your occupying a position of doubt and unbelief. It has also strengthened your unbelief to see that some of these unconsecrated ones were professing strong faith in the visions, vindicating them uh, when opposed and defending them with warmth, while at the same time that they professed so much zeal they were disregarding the teachings given through the visions and were going directly contrary to them. So what do you hear happening here? What's the process going on in this group? Can people join a denominational church group, whatever denomination, and still not be converted to Christ? So one thing we're hearing, there are people that have come in to this particular organization, but it can be any organization, and they identify with the organization, they take the name of the organization, but they go out and misrepresent the principles of Christ. This can happen in any church group. One of the things Paul said was that we should not compare ourselves among ourselves. And that's just one of the favorite things that people do. And then, great, thank you, because right on that line, did you notice also there's this, because these people have so many shortcomings and failings and they're members of the church, you've used that as an excuse for your own lack of faith and your own unbelief. Yeah. How many times have you heard people say, I don't go to church, it's full of hypocrites. Bunch of hypocrites over there. I went there and there's a bunch of mean people, people that aren't very Christ-like, therefore I don't believe anything about that. Are we to fix our eyes on people? Where are we to fix our eyes? On Christ, that's right. And one of the ways to understand why there's so many sick people in church is for the same reason there's so many sick people at the hospital. You find the sickest people at the hospital. But hopefully, if it's a good hospital, you also find some mature healthcare providers who know how to deal with the sick. And you find that in Scripture, that if somebody stalls, you who are mature should nurture them back to spiritual health. And so the church is a place where we find the immature and the, uh, there, but the mature is supposed to be leading them into maturity and health and healing. Unfortunately, if you went to a hospital where the sick patients were running the hospital, that's a problem. If you went to an addiction treatment center run by the addicts who were still using the substances, this would be a problem. Okay, so if and there are some organizations out there that are run by people who are really the sick ones. I've seen some of those organizations. It's very destructive, so, and and we all seen the very extreme ones. The extreme ones where they actually drink the Kool Aid. So yes. Well, and I heard an analogy I really liked one time. It's uh, saying in the in the flood, the ark was uh, the worst smelling place to be, maybe, but it was the safest place to be. <laughs> Nice. I like that. So let me ask you this question. Is our trust to be in other people or to be in God and Jesus Christ? Is our trust to be in the organized church? I'm going to tell you, I think there are a lot of people who have placed their trust in the institutional church rather than their trust in God. The institutional church is a vehicle used by God for agendas and purposes, but we aren't saved by the institution. The institution is an instrument used by God. Our trust is not in the institution. Our trust is in God. Look at the institution. Israel was God's chosen nation. It was his institution. He had purposes he was fulfilling through that organization. But that organization betrayed him and crucified him. It's better that one man die than the nation. Let's protect the institution. Let's our loyalty be to to protecting Israel and not, not this innocent man. And the Supreme Court rulers, the Sanhedrin, got together and made that decision. The institution comes first. No, our loyalty is to Christ. So it's not okay to point out the shortcomings of other people. But is the fact that we won't point out the shortcomings of another person's life the same as we don't disagree with someone's teachings? They teach this and we won't take issue with their teaching. Or are we supposed to present the truth in love? And that truth, as we present in love, is described as a 
two-edged sword, which cuts through distortions. And Jesus said, I, uh, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the sword is the sword of truth. And so there, this idea that we don't mis- uh, t- tell stories about people's personal lives is true, but it does not, should not lead to the point that we won't confront distortion with truth. Does that make sense? We want to present the truth about who Christ is, even if it, even if someone else gets their feelings hurt. So then, would it be good to say, um, "Should be checking our thoughts and motives"? Then, yes, checking our thoughts and motives. Absolutely. I can differentiate between the accuser of the brethren and the one who's reaching out to his brother. Yeah. So, accusing brethren is is a whole lot different. Accusing them, and see, there's a difference between taking an issue with an idea. I think you're wrong in this idea, but I still love you, and I know you're, you're searching the best you can, and it's what you understand, but I just don't think that's right, versus saying, because you teach that idea, you're Satan's agent, and you shouldn't be coming here. Those are not the same, are they? Yeah. Also remember that when Christ and, and John the Baptist met with conflict, Christ withdrew. He did not push his agenda. He withdrew to another area and was very effective at working the other area. And he told them to shake the dust off your feet. Okay, doesn't mean you change the message, but you don't you don't use um, authoritarian measures and, con- and 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 conflictual measures to force people to hear what you're going to say. Yeah, that's good. Um, and then Peter transitions to the next, where he talks to them. Okay, after you put away all this malice and negative stuff, um, he uses the metaphor of babies hungry for milk. Meaning that true Christians not only avoid the negative, but are hungry for spiritual milk. Now, he tells them, like newborn babes, crave spiritual milk. But why would Peter say this? And Paul says, you ought to be on meat. Get off the milk. Because those newborn babies on milk, they're not acquainted with righteousness. Is there a conflict here? I mean, you can't always do the baby, always do it on milk, and we can go well with its health. You've got to start somewhere, not the place to start, but growth has to happen. Well said, yes. Thank you. So this is, and notice what Peter just said in the verse right before. Put away the malice, the evil speaking, and all these things. He's talking to people who are just leaving the worldly ways. So by definition, they are the newborns the infants in Christ. So where do the newborns start? They start on the spiritual milk. So there's not a conflict here. But Paul's talking to people who had been on milk a long time and they're refusing to get off the milk and advance to more deeper understandings of things. They're staying very, very childish in their understanding of what God has done for them. So it's about maturation. That's correct. We want to mature. And the core issue to maturation is this principle in your heart. So develop this principle in your heart. A love for truth and a desire to understand, comprehend, assimilate, and move forward in truth as early as your, as your individuality is capable of, of processing it. That is the mature. That is the people who continue to grow. There's many people who have, have grown to a certain amount of truth, but then they, they stop. They don't want more. They become uncomfortable. And so they, 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 they lay down their doctrines and they create their boxes and they, and they, and they defend those views and they resist advancing truth. But remember, God is infinite and we're finite. The gap between us and him is infinite. For all eternity future, we never stop advancing. So we want a a hunger for what's true and and a willingness to grow and advance as the evidence from God's kingdom is, is brought to us. We want that desire. And that is what Thessalonians, Paul in Thessalonians says, distinguishes the saved from the lost. The lost are those who, quote, did not love the truth. They didn't have a, a heart that loved truth and was willing to advance and be corrected. So, as I've heard said, you know, you can have a disagreement on some point of, of doctrine, some point of interpretation of scripture with someone, but both of you have a heart that w- wants to grow in truth. And so you get to heaven one day and you say, you know what, I, we're going to have to disagree. When we get to heaven, we're going we're to go to Jesus. We're going to ask Jesus and uh, say, you know, um, which one of us was right on this point? And, and you have to be prepared for Jesus to say what? Well, well, the truth is neither. And, 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 and the person who goes, well, well, I don't know about that, Lord. I really think I'm right on this one. <laughs> okay? That person might have problems. You see? Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There's a verse I really like in John 16, that where Jesus is speaking with his disciples just before the end of his life. 
Starting with verse 12, he says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. That's right. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from me what is mine and making it known to you. So, and what do you understand that to be describing? Contextually, what's going on here? So the Spirit is not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Who is the Spirit listening to? If he's going to be the communication, the, the, the one passing on a message, whose message is he passing on? He's, not, he's going to come to you with truth, and he's not going to speak on his own. He's going to speak what he hears. So he is Christ's representative. And, and so Christ is pleading. You ever hear these, these descriptions? Christ is in heaven pleading his blood metaphorical his blood his life his sacrifice his love for you well who is he pleading to you and me and the holy spirit takes that and brings those those longings of christ to our hearts and minds and he's pleading with us because he's not speaking on his own and he's going to take what's mine and make it known to you and what is it that christ now possesses that we need a new heart and right spirit. His character. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. So we, we get the mind of Christ. He takes the mind of Christ and makes it known to us. And so this is about healing and restoration. Yes? I was going to say back to this pursuit and love of the truth. I found, and I'm sure you see in your practice, it's not just for spiritual things. That's right. It's in relationships. It's in other things in life where our powers of denial and distortion are very strong. But learning to love the truth and accept the truth as soon as you possibly can. can so one of my truisms that I teach my patients, you can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. The longer you delay, the more painful it is when you have to finally deal with it. But truth will always come out, always. So it's, it's, it's better to understand that principle and say, okay, the truth is what the truth is. I want to be a lover of truth. I want to understand it. I want to comprehend it. I want to apply it. I want to move forward in it at the earliest possible moment, not until the point that my denial and distortion can no longer hold the truth at bay. That doesn't work. And this is most commonly seen, the most common place it's seen is in relationships. When someone's in a relationship with somebody who is unhealthy and they, oh, I didn't mean it. He, he, he really cares. Oh, he, he, he just had a bad day. Oh, he, he said he's going to quit. Or she, she didn't. This, this denial of the objective reality of who you're dealing with because you want to believe the person really loves you. That's the most common. And the second most common is when there's a health problem. Oh, I can't, it, you know, I, I, it's not really that bad. And so they don't go get checked out because they're afraid of what the diagnosis will be. So they deny the symptoms. And those are the two most places I see that. All right, moving on to Monday's lesson. Talks, asks us to read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, which states, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then we're going to stop with that. You can read the rest of it. So what is Peter teaching here? Well, the easy one, the cornerstone, which is rejected by men, represents Christ. That's an easy one. But what's being referred to as by the living stones? What are the living stones representative of? And then what? She said us, for those who didn't hear. Us. We're the living stones, okay? And then what is the spiritual house referring to? So in the, in the lesson, it says, Peter's point is that even though Jesus was rejected and crucified, he was chosen by God to become a cornerstone of God's spiritual house. Christians then are living stones that are built into this spiritual house. I think that's correct. Question, is this spiritual house the same thing as the heavenly sanctuary or something different? Isn't it the remnant? When I say the heavenly sanctuary, within Adventist circles, there's an entire theory of doctrine that centers around sanctuary under that. There's a sanctuary in heaven, a heavenly sanctuary. So my question to you is, is that spiritual house that's being referred to here, the same thing as that heavenly sanctuary, which on 2,300 days in the sanctuary should be cleansed, or are they two different edifices? Same or different? What do you think? Same. Okay, I have a vote for same. Anybody not sure? So when you think of cleansing the sanctuary... The historical teaching of the church, 2,300 years, 2,300 days, sanctuary be cleansed. 
what comes to mind? So I'll ask some questions. Does history need to be cleansed from the facts of what has transpired? The record of Satan's rebellion in heaven, the lies told, the sins human beings have committed. Do we need to erase from the records of history what's actually transpired in the rebellion? How many times have some element of that? Only the sins, not all the sins, no. The sins of the wicked, we need to always remember those. But the sins of the righteous, they need to be erased. We need to erase those. So when we get to heaven, no one will know the wicked deeds we've done. Because they've been erased. No one will know. This is a common teaching in Advent. In fact, one of, my, one of the major critics of our ministry, this is the core reason of their criticism. At the GC a, few, a couple years back, there was a person going through the uh, event, handing out a card uh, saying, Dr. Jennings teaches heresy. Visit this website. And, I'm, and I found him there, and we had a conversation. And his first question to me was, do you believe that when we confess our sins, they go into the sanctuary in heaven, and they go into judgment beforehand, and for those sins of the righteous, they are erased out of the record books in heaven? I said, I believe God wants to erase sin and sinfulness out of the hearts, minds, and character of his people. But he doesn't want to erase history because history will stand as a testimony of God's goodness and the plan of salvation and the danger of sin so that we remember this never repeats itself. And he goes, see, I knew you didn't believe the Bible. And then he said to me these words, and this is, this is diagnostic. It reveals why he, he thinks this way. He said, very sincerely, very sincerely and humbly. I'll, I'll tell you, he wasn't arrogant. He's very humble. But he said, I have committed sins in my life that I've confessed. And they'll be erased out of the record books. When we get to heaven, no one will ever know those sins that I've committed. Do you understand the security he gains from that? See, what's, what's, what's he revealing to us with that statement? That he's afraid. He's afraid he cannot be accepted and not loved and not liked if people knew the things he's done. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Okay? Perfect love casts out all. Now, Jesus said to the woman who washed his feet with the spike nard, in defense of her, he said, those who are forgiven much, love much. You see, if the things are actually erased, and not just out of the books, but out of the memories of all the people who ever, so there's no knowledge, does it enhance our love for God or undermine our love for God? If you, had a, if you yourself or a loved one of yours was dying of a terminal condition and there was no hope, but Jesus comes in and he touches them and he heals them and they're restored to perfect health. It's your child. Your child is about, but they're restored to you. Do you have great, overwhelming thanks and appreciation for him? How about if the next day their sickness is all erased and you don't remember how sick they were? Does your appreciation falter now? Does it fall because you have no, you don't remember how sick they were and what he's done? This is what this teaching and this distortion and corruption. It's not true. This is a classic Adventist sanctuary doctrine teaching, though. There's danger in concluding the heavenly sanctuary is built out of inanimate material such as gold and silver and, and pearls and stones. If you believe the heavenly sanctuary is built out of that, there's danger. What kind of theology do we get if that's what we think? Well, first off, how can gold and silver be contaminated with sin? Can gold and silver sin? Then... What might be taught if people think concretely? Some might think of an idea that what contaminates the heavenly sanctuary is a record, a written transcript of the bad things people have done, which is being stored there. And if this is what contaminates the heavenly sanctuary, then what needs to be done? Well, those, that record, that recorded history of deeds has to be removed. And this is how we cleanse things, and we end up with the theology like I just shared with you. This is the legal theology in which the problem is the broken rules and the and which get recorded in the books. And God, in such a theology, is the is the uh, the keeper of the records, spying on everyone to make sure an accurate accounting of every misdeed has has been accurately recorded. And he becomes then the one who arbitrates and decides whether you've actually really, you know, you did confess over here, but you didn't really mean it, so the blood didn't get applied on this one. But you meant it over there, so we erased that one. So we're going to take 27 minutes off in the flames for you because you got that one erased, but this one didn't get erased. And 
This is how people think. That's an arbitrary number as well. And we create these legal theologies about pardon and records and judgments and things like this. If it sounds ridiculous to you, that's because some part of you is really, like, that just uh, doesn't sound right at all. It's all based on the lie that God's laws function like our laws. If you're operating under the imposed human law construct and trying to make sense of the heavenly sanctuary doctrine through the way human courts work, you will always end up in the wrong place. You have to come back to God as creator and the builder of reality and then what he's trying to achieve and what sin actually did to the creation and what God is working to do through Christ to restore the creation back to his design and you'll come out on the right side of things. So first, what is the heavenly sanctuary constructed out of? Peter is telling us living stones. And what has contaminating the living stones? What contaminates the living stones of the sanctuary? Sin in us. Selfishness, sinfulness of character, then what needs to be cleansed? And you read scripture. What is all the scripture cleansing? I will write my law where? I will give you a new heart and right spirit. We'll take out the heart of stone, put it in our, we have circumcision of the heart by the spirit. We'll have the mind of Christ. The old is gone. The new is come. We'll be reborn. All the metaphors of scripture are not talking about cleaning record books and historical facts. They're talking about transforming and regenerating people into righteousness. This is cleansing. When we experience conversion, that's what we get, a new heart and right spirit, and the law gets written on the heart. And then what? We talk about the robe of Christ's righteousness as covering our sinful self. When Ellen White says the robe of Christ's righteousness is actually taking on his character. Yeah, in Christ's Object Lessons, uh, page uh, 311, 411. 311 or 411. I can always get that backwards. One of those two places is when our thoughts are brought into harmony with his thoughts. Our um, will is merged with his will. Our desires are united with his desires. We live his life. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of righteousness. Exactly right. It's the transforming of the inner man. That's partaking of the divine nature. That's what it means. And so the record books in heaven will record just like medical records, if you want to use it that concretely, records the, the devastation of the pathology of our character, but also records the partaking of Jesus Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, the cutting away, the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the necrotic tendencies and evil habits, and the establishment of new desires and new moments, and the recreation of a Christ-like heart within. It's all revealed there, just like medical records reveal there was cancer, and we took chemotherapy, and now the cancer's in remission. So, some of you, if you're not comfortable with this conclusion, I'll make you more uncomfortable before we get comfortable again. Because I'm going to read you this out of Great Controversy 421. Because when you present these ideas, people who are still operating at level four and below in the imperial law construct and want things very concretely and want the historical view, they'll read this to you, and you, you should be able to answer this. Anciently, the sins of the people were by faith placed on, this, on the sin offering and through its blood transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary. So in the new covenant, the sins of the repentant are by faith placed upon Christ and transferred, in fact, to the heavenly sanctuary. And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of the sins which had been, which, by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is to be accomplished by the removal or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. But before this can be accomplished, there must be an examination of the books of record to determine who, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, are entitled to the benefits of his atonement. The cleansing of the sanctuary, therefore, involves a work of investigation, a work of judgment. This work is performed prior to the coming of Christ. Do you feel warm? Does, does it make clear sense to you? Are you going like, yeah, that is... Oh, it's like, have you come out of the darkness into the light? Or is this like pushing you back into the darkness? Can you explain this very clearly to me and what this means? I'm wondering if it means friend or enemy, against or for the government of God. Talking about the books and giving accountability for who you are. In this context, it's both. The next sentence says, His reward is with him to give every man according to his work. So every man, both sides. The investigation. But primarily in the sanctuary are the ones who confess their sins in Christ and claim Christ as their Savior, that they're transferred to Christ and then transferred to the sanctuary, and thus this would be the sins of the righteous, primarily here. Not, not the unrepentant. Can you explain it? Talking about removing the sin and the responsibility, therefore, that goes with it, uh, but not necessarily the, the erasing of it out of the record, because that will be 
judgment and nice thought how do we unpack that how we weave that in other thoughts you will get hit with this you will i promise and and if you don't take it concretely the the ones who hold that view they take this thoughtlessly and they will say this is what the spirit of prophecy says do you believe it or not and if you don't see i know you didn't believe you have to say what does it mean what does it mean back up and ask the questions what is the heavenly sanctuary constructed out of? So when I talk to people like this, I always back up and say, okay, I'll in- interpret this question. You tell me what is the heavenly sanctuary built out of? People. From inspired sources. If you go to scripture and Ellen White both, you, you will always come to the conclusion that the heavenly sanctuary is built out of living stones, living intelligent beings. Once you do that and you think, okay, that's what it's built out of, then something's being recorded and, and living beings. Okay, now, now, now are you getting a closer understanding of what's, what's happening here? Hmm. Tim, when, yes. When you're hitting a, a really heavy theological point like this, it seems to me that, um, <laughs> In the sense that people feel an urgency to get right. In fact, once they've heard this, they want it like right now. They want, they want somebody like you as the minister or you as the doctor to say, okay, I declare you cured with this knowledge, with this truth. Sure. It becomes, you know, a tyranny of the urgent for them. And that, and that, that declaration. And this, and this is level four thinking. And they go, so they're, they're not even capable at that point of going past. It's the student playing baseball with the rules. I'm on base. You can't tag me out. That's what they want. They want to know that they've checked the checkbox. They're on base. They can't be tagged out. My sins have been covered, legally taken care of. I'm, I'm good. That's level four thinking, rules. Okay, so, so again, the medium... So if the heavenly sanctuary is constructed of living beings, then what is the medium upon which the sins are recorded? From which they need to be removed. What's the medium that they're written in? What does it say in the new covenant? I'll write my law where? In your heart. So where do you think the sins are being written? Ah, in the hearts, minds, and characters. That is the heavenly sanctuary. That's where they're being recorded. And that's where they need to be removed from. Okay? It would be in the individuality, the character. So it's not simply about deeds. It's about actual motives and the kind of people we are. Every sin reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for him to sin again, changes them in the character. This is where things are being recorded. So who removes this? How is it removed? So let's, uh, let's read you a couple of other quotations. This is out of uh, TSB 62. Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. What's being photographed? Keep going. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist, what do your heavenly books say in your case? What's being recorded there? So what will be the medium upon which sins are being recorded? When sins are being recorded in the heavenly sanctuary, what's the medium that's recording it there? Hearts, minds, and characters. How about this one? Every passage out of uh, T- TM, Testimonies of Ministers, page 429. Every passing hour of the, pre- of, of the present is shaping our future life. These moments spent in carelessness and self-pleasing, as if, no va- as if of no value, are deciding an everlasting destiny. The words we utter today will go on echoing when time shall be no more. The deeds done today are transferred to the books of heaven just as the features are transferred to the artist on the polished plate. They will determine our destiny for eternity, for bliss or eternal loss, agonizing or agonizing remorse. Character cannot be changed when Christ comes nor just as a man is about to die. Character building must be done in this life. We fear that repentance will come uh, to the self-indulgent, tainted soul all too late. A few resolves, a few tears, will never reverse a guilty past life, nor blot out of the books of heaven the transgression, the willful knowing sins of those who have had the precious light of truth. Blah, 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 blah. What What do you hear here? What's being recorded here? 
who we are. Our character is being recorded. Yes. There's a scripture says that our sins are as far from the east to the west. And I'll remember them no more. Right. And when uh, we're forgiven of our sins, Jesus said that they're no more remembered. Like right. So at what point when we get to the judgment, these sins that are from the east to the west and no longer remember, when are they brought back up to us? Okay, so you have to ask the question when you say, oh, no, remember them no more, what does it mean? Does it mean memory eraser and amnesia? Or does it mean they're not remembered in the context of the need to heal and restore because you're been healed and restored? I don't need to think about it anymore. So example, I love this example. Um, <clears throat> you have a child who uh, uh, told a fib. Told, your, your, your child's five years old, uh, six years old, and told, told a fib, told a story, told a lie. And you in love forgive already. You're not against. You don't need someone to plead with you to forgive your child, do you? You don't need intercession. You don't need payment, do you? No, you already forgive, but you realize that your child needs discipline, loving discipline to help them develop a mature character, come to repentance. And so you discipline in love and your child repents. I'm sorry, mommy. I'm sorry, daddy. I shouldn't have told the story. I shouldn't have lied. And you, and you having already forgiven and they repented, there's reconciliation and there's hugs and kisses and the relationship is reconciled. They go off to school. They come home later that day. When you see them come to the street, do you think, Oh, here comes that little liar of mine. Is that what you think? Or is it forgotten? As far as the relationship is concerned, having reconciled it and brought it to closure, it is not between you anymore. It's forgotten. Now, does that mean you have memory erasure and you can't remember the facts of what happened? Okay. So when it talks about throwing the east and from the west, God as our healer, uh, creator, uh, savior, working to identify the sickness in us and heal us and cure us, he is not forgetting how sick we are. He looks and search me and see the wicked way in me, creating me a clean heart, oh God. He's finding it. But once we are restored to righteousness and, and are glorified in heaven, he doesn't have to remember. When we walk up to him, he doesn't go, oh yeah, I remember. You're that adulterer and murderer, aren't you, David? Yeah, I remember you. You cost me a lot. I had to suffer an extra 17 hours because of you. Okay? That pressure was twice as bad. because I remember what you did, but you know what? I loved you, so I did it for you. Or as he treats him like he's never sinned. It's David. I, David, I'm so glad to see you. And it's, it's like it's never, it was never there. Does that mean God has memory erasure and doesn't remember what happened? This is what it means to cast them away. So that when, we, when he, he treats us, and then you see the woman caught in adultery. You see it. This is the grace that he treats the woman with, with, with love, with dignity, with kindness. You're important to me. I care about you. He doesn't see all the, the ugly things that she's done as something between them. He sees the ugly things as something that's hurting her because she lives in guilt and she lives in shame and she doesn't like herself. And he wants to remove all that from her. Okay, does that answer the question? Yes. So what about the thief on the cross? Do you just you forgave him minutes before he died? Okay, so my understanding of forgiveness is that God personally forgives Everybody. Period. Period. Satan is forgiven by God. In other words, God is not grudge-holding. God is not bitter. God is not resentful. God is not out to seek vengeance upon people. God's attitude is, I forgive you all, and I want to save you all. Okay? So his attitude is always one of forgiveness. However, as is evidenced on the thief, uh, as the evidence of the people who crucified Christ, when Christ extended forgiveness, they didn't receive it. So even though they are forgiven by God, they remain unforgiven. Unforgiven in their heart, unforgiven in their experience, because they haven't participated in the forgiveness that was extended. Does that make sense, or did I confuse you all? Okay. Now, the thief on the cross, the thief on the cross came to a point of trust. And this is the key point of conversion. The key point of conversion is, do I surrender in trust to you? This was Abraham. Our natural heart is enmity and distrusting of God and self-serving. Abraham came to the point where he trusted God, and once he trusted God, the, the distrustfulness of his natural heart had been replaced with trust, thus he was recognized as being set right. His heart was now right with God, he's justified. It was an actual condition of heart change. And once his heart was right with God, and we trust him with the heart opens, and the Spirit comes in, and the Spirit you read earlier will take what is Christ and make it known to us and reproduce that in us, and now it's just cleanup operations after that. The thief came to the point where he trusted genuinely God, opened his heart, and the rest would be clean up after that. 
Okay, if he would have lived, he would have developed and practiced new methods and so forth. Yes. I like your phrase. The rest of it is just clean up. I, you know, it's, the question that comes to my mind is obviously all of us, uh, when Christ returns, who go with him to heaven, will have a character like his. He will have transformed our character. That's right. How many of us will be at a point where we haven't stumbled in the last 24 hours? Quite a few, actually. I think most of us. I think the vast majority at that point. Because the stumbling isn't about a behavior. It's not about how many hasn't dribbled soup on their chin. How many hasn't tripped on a root? How many haven't uh, um, dropped a a glass in the kitchen? It's not about that. It's about heart attitude. How many of us have poked our finger in God's eye? Exactly. How many of us have broken trust with him? None of us will have broken trust. We will all have trusted him. We all love God and others more than him, more than ourselves. See, that part isn't going to change. And that's the real character. It's not about the specific behavior. We, depending on our level of maturity, we might be like Rahab and tell a fib. But her heart was, I'm going to put my life and I'm going to step in harm's way to protect others. I'm willing. These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That's Revelation 12, 11. And Rahab, I don't love my life so much as to shrink from death. I'll protect these people, even though you're here and you could kill me if you catch them there. Okay? Now, she tells a fib. We don't say, we don't see scripture saying, well, lied Rahab. But we see scripture recognizing that she exercised faith or trust. And, and so that's the kind of thing that, that I think all those, when, when, when the translation comes, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. Like him how? In, in eye color, in height, in, in body build, in, in, in character. That we love God and we love his methods and we trust God and we, when we're, when we practice his method of truth, love, and freedom. Yeah. So much of our ideology or our attitude toward this whole topic of salvation and sin and whatnot is sin's act of commission versus sin, brokenness of trust. And in the legal model and everything else, we're, we're so concentrated on our, all the individual acts. That's right. And that's, and that's, that's, that's irrelevant. It's the relationship, it's the damage that has been done, it's the relationship restored, and there may be individual acts of misstep because we are faulty, but we will not have a belligerence or lack of trust of the God. And so, a couple more quotes, on, because we're running out of time, and I wanted to bring this to conclusion about the heavenly sanctuary and the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. This is um, Third Manuscript Relief 231. About the, first, she goes on about the first tabernacle was prepared and all things were brought on site, already ready to be put together. Even so, the mighty cleaver of truth has taken out a people from the quarry of the world and is fitting this people who profess to be the children of God for a place in his heavenly temple. We want the cleaver of truth to do its work for us. We are taken from the quarry of the world. The material must not be a dead substance, but living souls. And these living souls must be brought out of the quarry of the world where the hand of God can fit them for the temple in heaven. We are here as probationers, and we must pass under the hand of God. All rough edges and rough surfaces must be removed, and we must be stones fitted for the building. We are brought into church capacity with defects of character. We must not retain them. We must be, notice, defects of character is not, um, we must never uh, have a, a, a behavioral thing that, are, that we come up short on. It's defects of character. We hold to selfishness. We, we, we're deceivers. We're liars. We're exploiters. We're, 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 we're cheats. That's defects of character. Okay, We must be filled and squared for the building. We must be co-laborers with God, for we are God's husbandry. We are God's building. See, how many of those people, when they come to you with that other quote from Great Controversy, will integrate quotes like this and define the actual building blocks of what the sanctuary is? And so if you want the heavenly sanctuary cleansed, the mechanism for cleansing the sanctuary is cleansing the characters of the people. That's how you cleanse it. That's what it's built from. There's another really good quote, but I'm going to have to close itself out of uh, Heavenly Places, also about basically expanding in a different angle on the Heavenly Sanctuary being built out of people and the cleansing of the people. So let's go ahead and close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are working to prepare people to fix what's broken in us. Because when Adam sinned, he changed himself. You didn't change. Your design, your law for reality didn't change, but we did. And thank you so much that you sent Jesus to do what we could never do. 
And now you've sent your spirit to take all that, that Christ has achieved to reproduce it in us. And we pray that the truth will dispel the distortions and the lies, that we will have hearts that love the truth and want to grow in the truth. And as we open our hearts and trust to you, that you will take the perfection of Christ and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.